Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Have you ever had a cross-cultural experience that blew your mind? Some years ago, I visited a friend of mine called Gideon at his home. I'd never been to his home before. It was a fascinating experience. I've never forgotten it. Gideon and I were studying together, but I'd never met his wife, Esther, or his children. So it's the first time I was meeting them, and they were a family from northern Nigeria. Now, for some reason that day, I said to him I was going to be there at 3 o'clock, but I completely messed up. I, had, I, I made a pig's ear of the arrangements, and some things happened, and I ended up turning up at their house over an hour late. And I hadn't even communicated with them because I didn't have a phone. So I felt really bad. And I turned up. It was the first time I was going to meet them. And there I am. Uh, hi, I'm so sorry. I'm really late. Is this, is this an inconvenient time for you? And they just looked at me like I was from another planet and said, how could it be an inconvenient time? So I was like, okay. So they brought me in. And the first thing they did was sit me down in the kitchen and just serve me up a big bowl of this wonderful Nigerian stew. It's just wonderful. And I'm sitting there eating, and we're talking, and the children came in and went out. And then I got up and got my bowl and went over and tried to help with the washing up. And Esther told me, in no uncertain terms, to sit down. She said, you will offend me if you try and do the dishes in my kitchen. Okay. This is a different cultural experience. So she proceeded to tell me that uh, in, in their home, guests would come and visit Family members and other people would come unannounced and stay for days or weeks. And that she would expect them not to lift a finger to help because it was her domain. She said, if they try to help me in my kitchen, I'd be offended because this is my domain. They asked me some questions that day that kind of blew my categories a bit. How could lateness be inconvenient? You're here. How could I let you help in my kitchen? How could having guests and in-laws not be an immense privilege that you would want them to be with you for weeks? Now, I don't know. How many white Europeans feel the same way? I'm not mentioning this, by the way, to advocate a particular view of roles in marriage. I'm not commenting on their culture. Although I've occasionally felt slightly envious of Nigerian men. Uh, what, I, what I'm trying to get at here is there's something more fundamental, and it's this. We all operate out of an identity, and it totally shapes our response to a situation. We all operate out of an identity. Esther's identity led her to respond to those things in a, in a, in a quite different way. She was confident in who she was. She had a particular understanding of who she was. She was a woman, a wife, a mother, and she ruled her domain. She knew her identity, and she lived out of it confidently, and as far as I could tell, she was happy and free in it. And that's what blew my mind. See, the same two situations can draw out a completely different response from two different people because of who they think they are who they think they are. So let me ask you today, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, who do you think you are? 
who do you think you are? Now, in the teaching today, we come to a crucial part of the Christian faith, but it's often neglected and misunderstood, and it's this. How do you grow as a Christian? If you're a follower of Jesus, how do you grow? How do you become more like Jesus? How do you see your character transformed from the inside out, becoming more patient and kind and gracious and loving? How do you stop sinning? How do you break addiction? How do you grow in holiness? How? Now, this area is called, the the big word for it is sanctification. Sanctification, which means being purified and made holy and made set apart for God. Now, why is this so important? Three C's. Calling, conscience, and credibility. Calling. If you read the Bible for more than 10 minutes, you're going to find something in there that's going to call followers of Jesus, to a very high standard. We're described as a holy priesthood. We're described as saints, not just a few people who did a miracle and died and then the church decided a while later that they were saints. Every Christian is a saint, according to the New Testament. We're described as a royal priesthood, a people who are like a shining light in the world. All of these things are descriptions of, of, of God's people. So, Every command is based on this high calling that we have to be holy people. Also, our conscience tells us, if you know you've deliberately sinned and done something against God's will, if you've gone back to some attitude or some action, something that you thought you'd left behind and and you've done it again, your conscience is telling you that you need to be different, isn't it? And finally, our credibility. New Testament says we're supposed to be holy not just to please God, but also to promote God to be a kind of public advertisement of what God is doing in the world and how his people are different. They live clean, good, attractive lives. We sang about it in in that song earlier on. Let's go to the mountain. People will see God's people and want to know God because of them, because they are different. So we really have to be different. So it's critical that not only do we believe a new gospel, but that we live a new life. Not just talk the talk, but... Walk the walk. And so our series here is on this new life, newness of life. And at the start of the series, a few weeks ago, I mentioned a man in France who'd found a Caravaggio painting in his loft, a painting of Judith and Holofernes, and the painting was estimated uh, to be valued at £90 million. And it had been in the loft for 150 years. Nobody knew. They just went up there to check out a leak, and there was the painting. So I asked the question, if you were in possession of something truly life-changing, what would you do about it? If you were in possession of something truly life-changing, you would take vigorous steps to seize the benefits. You'd take vigorous steps. But I've got a hunch today, and it's this. If we are really, really honest, I think that a lot of Christians don't feel that they are growing as they ought to. How many of us can honestly say that we are walking and living in newness of life? Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. Far from it. Your guilt has already been dealt with. If you've trusted Jesus, that debt is paid. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul.
So we're not in the guilt business here. But we do want to be in the growth industry. I know it's cheesy. We're not in the guilt business. We want to be in the growth industry. We want to be growing in Jesus. So just think for a minute about your, your attitudes, your actions, your addictions. Think about your misplaced love and the things that you care far too much about. Think about your habitual sins. Think about your growth in Christian character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Christian friend, how is it going? Are you growing? Now then, according to the Bible, our main problem and our main challenge is not practical. It's not that we have to learn a bunch of spiritual techniques and a bunch of things or go to the equivalent of a spiritual gym, gymnasium and kind of tone up by working very, very hard. We don't have to learn how to climb a ladder to be near God. According to the New Testament, we start every day at the top of the ladder because we're justified by grace through faith alone. Before you get out of bed in the morning, you can open your eyes and say with confidence, I am accepted. Justified. So our main challenge is not practical. Our main challenge is theological. Because in the Bible, right thinking is what leads to right living. The battle is always in the mind. So if there is a tension in your life at the moment, and if there is a gap in your sanctification, so you're believing all these things, but there's a real gap between what you're believing and how you're living, then it must have its roots in what you believe it must have its roots down there deep in your heart in what you believe about God, what you believe about yourself, and what you believe about the gospel. So that is what we're driving at today, is, is what we believe and about ourselves and how it will shape the way we live and walk in newness of life. And I tell you, this is the most important thing we could be thinking about together. Because I don't want to live half a Christian life, do you? I want to live a whole Christian life, a life of integrity, freedom. So that I can wake up in the morning and not just say, I am accepted, but also, I am free. I'm delivered from all those things, those sins that you took the penalty for. I'm free from them and continue living in the power of that all day long. Don't you want that? I want to encourage you also with this thought. Our problems in this area are not new. They're as old as the New Testament itself. Much of the Bible is devoted to this same topic of how we live and the most important chapter on this topic is right in front of us, Romans chapter 6. Lucy read the first half of it. And if we can grasp this teaching and start to apply it to our hearts, it will transform us and it will rock our world. And if we don't grasp it, we're forever bound in the shallows. So will you pray right now, if you are a praying person, for God to change us during this meeting? Two very simple points from Romans one, first, sorry, Romans six, first half, and uh, Prabhav is going to pick up the second half in two weeks' time. Two simple points, okay? Know who you are and be who you are. Know who you are and be who you are. Know who you are. Jesus told a famous story about two sons. I'm sure most of you know it. There was an older brother and a younger brother. 
The older brother was a kind of diligent, hard-working, earnest, compliant sort of a type. And the younger brother was a bit of a wild stallion. And one day he went to the dad and said, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance now. Which in the culture was like slapping his dad in the face. It's the most offensive thing he could say. It was like saying, Dad, I want to live as if you're dead. You're dead to me. Just give me your stuff. I don't want you. So the father gave him his share of the inheritance. And he went off and he squandered the money in wild living. He blew it all on whiskey and prostitutes. And finally, he was totally bankrupt and he found himself uh, starving. So he goes to this guy and says, please, can you give me a job? And he got a job feeding pigs, which is like the lowest job of the low to Jewish people. Feeding pigs. And it even says, Jesus said, you know, one day he was looking at the, the pig's food and thinking, well, I maybe I might help myself to some of that. He was so low. And then he came to his senses and he thought, what am I doing here? Even my father's hired man, his servants, live better than this. I'll go back to him and I'll just say, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. Please would you have me back uh, and I, I, just to, to work in as, as a hired man. So he goes away and, and he's treading towards the house. And, uh, but as he's on his way, he hadn't even got home. The father who's scanning the horizon sees him from a distance and picks up his clothes and runs to the son. And the son sees him coming and he's thinking, what's going to happen now? And he starts blurting out, father, I've sinned before. And the father won't even let him finish. He says, my son, you're back. And he embraces him and he brings him into the house. And he says, my son has come back. Here, take the, the, the ring from my finger, put it on him. Get the best robe, dress him in, in, in beautiful robes. And, and take the fattened calf and, and let's prepare it and let's have a barbecue. Let's have a party because my son, who was lost, is found. He was dead and now he's alive again. And Jesus depicts God's grace to us in that image of the father running out to the son. But just imagine this. Fast forward a few years. Imagine that life has now settled down again to the same routine. Even the older brother has calmed down. Frankly, it's a bit boring. The younger brother's sitting there one day. He's got his penknife and he's whittling a piece of wood, thinking about life. And he remembers that day that he came up the road and his dad ran out to him. And he sighs with the happy memory. Oh, what a day that was. And then he thinks, suppose I did it again. Why not steal some cash, run off for a few weeks, blow it all on whiskey and prostitutes, then eat humble pie and come back again? Maybe I'll get another party. Now, is that ridiculous? It's actually what a lot of people think about grace. W.H. Auden wrote a poem in which a criminal says these words. I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Heinrich Heine was a German poet. As he lay on his deathbed, a priest came and advised him to make his peace with God unless he die unforgiven. I'm not worried, Heine said. God will forgive me. That's his job. Is that how it works? See, here's the challenge. If grace is really free and you don't have to do anything to earn it, if in fact you can't because you've demerited yourself, then why should you change at all? Why not sin all the more 
so that grace may increase. Now, Paul has heard this one before. It's dogged his steps, and he writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, he mentioned it. He said, uh, some have slanderously claimed that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. And here in chapter 6, he takes up the big stick again. So have a look with me at Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. By no means. This is really strong language. He's saying, absolutely not. It is vehement. Paul has just knocked over his coffee. He's standing up. His eyes are bulging. He's winding up the big right hook. By no means, he says. Some other translations. May it never be. God forbid. Or my favorite from J.B. Phillips' translation. What a ghastly thought. (laughs) How English. What a ghastly thought. Why not, Paul? Because of who you are now, he says. Because of who you are now. Know who you are. If you're a Christian... You're united to Jesus Christ. So you've got to know who you are. So friends, back to the question again. Who do you think you are? If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, then you are, according to Paul, completely united to Jesus. Completely united to him. I'm going to read these verses out. And as I'm reading, watch for the past tenses. Back to Romans 6. Watch for the past tenses. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know, watch these tenses, that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So there it is. You're completely united to Jesus. But our problem is we don't understand our own past. We don't understand our relationship to Jesus. Bob Marley sang, if you know where your history, then you will know where you're coming from. But Christians forget their own history. According to this text, every Christian died 2,000 years ago. Every Christian in this room died 2,000 years ago. You were nailed to a cross and the nails went through your hands. Every Christian here was buried with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. You were stone-cold dead, laid in a tomb, and a stone rolled across. Because what happened to him then was also happening for you. Huh. How does it work? Now, the answer to this is something we have to grasp, because otherwise we won't understand how the whole Bible works. God deals with the whole of humanity through two representatives. Back in chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So one sin of one 
original human brought condemnation for all of us. Because our representative sinned. Verse 19 of chapter 5. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So through the obedience of one person, many, many millions, billions of people will be made righteous, it says. Because of God deals with representatives. Adam, the first man, whose name means man, was a representative of humanity. He disobeyed, and he entered into a whole realm of sin and death, and so did his whole family. The whole of humanity was condemned with Adam's sin. Every one of us that's born in Adam's line share his likeness, and that's the bad news. Every child born into the world is a child of Adam. Every child is born with a bias to selfishness and disobedience. You don't have to... You parents, you know this now, you don't have to teach a child to lie, do you? It's amazing how they learn it. You don't have to teach a child to steal or to pass the blame onto somebody else. That child has been born in Adam. The American Puritans used to teach their children the alphabet with this little rhyme for the letter A. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. But the good news is this. This is an old hymn. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. You see, Jesus, too, is a representative. What happens to Jesus happens to all those who are in him. The Bible calls him the last Adam. Did Jesus enter into the realm of sin and death? Yes, he did, although he was personally spotlessly pure and perfect, on the cross he became sin for us. God the Father poured out his destructive justice on Jesus Christ as though he was the guilty one. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He experienced sin and death. He was separated from his Father on the cross. His soul was separated from his body in death. He was buried. He entered into the realm of sin and death. Then he rose... And he left that realm forever by resurrection. On the third day, he was made gloriously and immortally alive. He will never die again. It wasn't a resuscitation. He wasn't brought back to life. It was a resurrection. A new world order began. And now the last Adam, Jesus, lives in the realm of life. Sin and death for him are over and done with. And life is his eternal state. So... Here it is. Look with me again at Romans 6, verse 9 and 10. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So every true Christian here this morning has been baptized, immersed into Jesus Christ. When you trusted the good news, you were taken out of the realm of being in Adam and you were put into the realm of being in Christ, united with him. God plunged you into his son, lock, stock and barrel. God no longer relates to you as though you were in Adam. He has a new relationship with you. He relates to you as a son and daughter in Christ. And so water baptism, when we take somebody and we do it here in the school playground, with a big 
kind of baptismal pool that we borrow for church. And we fill it with water. It takes hours. And we get a person and plunge them under, hold them down a bit, and then lift them up. That is a gospel drama, a symbol. Nothing happens there, but it's a drama of what's already taken place. Death, burial, and resurrection. If you're in Christ. Just imagine a pregnant woman invited to a wedding. And she gets the invitation card and it says, uh, we'd love it if you can join uh, us for our wedding, but leave the baby at home. That baby's going because it's in me. <laughs> if you want to deal with me, you must have dealings with the one who is united to me, joined to me. Another illustration. Last night was the FA Cup final. The good news is a Manchester team won. The bad news is it was United. I texted a friend called Joe Byrne. He's over here. I asked him, did you win? Did you win? And he said, yes. <laughs> he won. Now, as far as I know, Joe wasn't playing in the FA Cup final. He was on his sofa on Old Hall Lane. But his team won. And he identifies with them. And if you go to a football match, you will feel how strongly some fans are united with the team. Even though they couldn't run up and down that touchline once themselves without having a heart attack, even though they've never managed a, even a kid's team, let alone a Premier League team, they feel and act as if they are playing and managing that team. It's just an illustration of this Bible fact. We are united with Jesus Christ. And so this is really a fact. It's not about your experience. Whatever you're feeling about it today doesn't really matter. It's a fact, according to God. There's an objectivity about it. It's a statement of fact, regardless of how you feel. That's why Paul is so forceful here at the start of the chapter. How can sin be normal for us? We died to it. How can people who are in Christ live as though they are in Adam? It's ridiculous. It's not an experience. It's a fact. Something God reckons as true. Okay, so do you know who you are, Christian friend? Know who you are. Secondly, more briefly, be who you are. Be who you are. Read with me verse 11 to 14. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin, as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. When you know who you are, you're free to be who you are. So Paul has written all these first five chapters. He hasn't given any commands yet. And finally, he gives a command in verse 11. Count yourselves dead to sin. Count it. Reckon it. Calculate it. Work on the basis of this assumption that you are dead to sin already. Just imagine a, an elderly Christian. Let's call him John Jones. One day, John Jones is looking back over his long life. And he sees that his life has been divided into two parts. There was the old self, John Jones, as he was born and before he was converted and followed Jesus. And then after that, there's the new self, John Jones, after his conversion. And the doorway between those two lives was marked by baptism. 
By faith and baptism, he was united to Jesus. His old self died, died to sin. And at the same time, John Jones rose again with Christ to live a new life. Now, John Jones is every believer. Our old life is gone. A new life has come. So now we have to live like that. Be who you are. We have to operate out of that identity. Now, some of you believe that you have two natures. I've heard people in this church saying things like this. They say things like this. I know I shouldn't have done it. It was my sinful nature. Or I'm struggling with my sin nature at the moment. Now, what does Romans 6 say about your sinful nature, guys? It says it died 2,000 years ago. You don't have a sinful nature. Now, this is not to say that you're perfect. It's a bit like a computer. And I'm not a techie, all right? So this is going to be a very simple illustration for non-technical people. The computer has a thing in it called the hard drive. It's what the computer is. And in most laptops, it's a big disk spinning around and around. Okay? The hard drive, the essential part of who you are, according to the Bible, is taken out and replaced with a new one, a solid-state drive. But there's a virus on it. You've got to clean up the virus, but you don't have two hard drives. See how we've got to think about ourselves? Not that there's two me's and they're fighting it out, that I've got an old hard drive and a new one, and they're kind of like this. No, no, the old is gone, the new has come. And now I've got to live like I am and clean up the virus. But growth as a Christian isn't automatic. You can't just be passive about it. You have to learn how to operate out of that new identity. And there's a paradox here. We have to grow by grace, not by making lots and lots of effort. We have to grow by learning to trust Jesus more and more, to depend on him. I'm going to try and illustrate this with a little personal story. Forgive me for this, but I think it's the best way to show it. Last night, I snapped at somebody over dinner. They were rude to me, and I barked at them. I knew it was a bad one because my wife was facing me at the other end of the table, giving me the daggers. And I got some instructions from her with the sound turned down. (laughs) Now, why did I snap at that person? Because they were rude to me, and I just can't bear disrespect. But my response was the response of the old me who died 2,000 years ago. So what should I do about it? There's the Roman Catholic way, the lawless way, the evangelical way, and the gospel way. The Roman Catholic way is you've got to do penance. You've got to pay it off. You've got to say so many Our Fathers and so many Hail Marys and go and confess. And then when you've paid it off, the sin will be forgiven. The antinomian or lawless way is just to say, forget about it. Doesn't matter. You're forgiven anyway. The evangelical way that I've often observed is denial or despair. Denial, well, it wasn't that bad anyway. I mean, they were being very rude. I'm not that bad. I'm not going to say sorry. Or despair. I'm just so fed up of being like this. I want to change and I can't. But there is a gospel way. This is how it plays out. The gospel way does this. It remembers who I am. And it actively decides to be who I am. The heart says, I can't stand disrespect. If people treat me like I'm a piece of dirt, then maybe I am a piece of dirt. 
Maybe I'm a nobody, and yet I really want to be a somebody. So I have to fight to get respect with everything I've got, and when I don't get it, I will make them pay. That's what the heart says. But the gospel says, you don't deserve respect, you idiot. You're a sinner of the worst kind, an enemy of God. But God loved you so much that he sent the most praiseworthy person, his own son, to die in your place. Jesus lost all his dignity. He lost all his respect. He was treated like dirt at the cross. And now God looks at you with the highest esteem. The eyes of the most important person in the universe are on you. And he thinks you're valuable. Do you really need the respect of those people? So when I saw that, I apologized to my wife. And I prayed, repented, and just moved on. Changed on the spot. I didn't need to go and do penance because I'm already forgiven. I just need to be who I am. But you know what? Most Christians live as though they are saved by grace and sanctified by effort. Saved by grace and sanctified by effort. And it's a miserable way to live. Because deep down we know that all our efforts and deeds aren't really good enough. And so that leads us to be very insecure We're highly defensive, we're prickly, we can't take criticism. Or it leads us to despair. It's like you're crying inside, you just can't make the grade. Or it leads you to denial. You just become brittle and hard. You can't ever say sorry. You downplay your failings and you self-justify. But none of those things is true to being who you are now. In Jesus, you are a new person. The old has gone, the new has come. Be who you are now. How's it going? Are you growing You can. You can. You're not bound to repeat the mistakes of the past. You're not locked into a sinful nature. You're a new person. Be new. Great English theologian of the last century, P.T. Forsyth, wrote these words. The fall of many who once were Christians is because they took no serious means with themselves to prosecute their life in him, but they were dragged in his wake till they got tired of the strain. What he's saying is, you know, people become a Christian, they follow Jesus for a while, but they take no kind of means to try and change, to apply his good news to their lives. They're just dragging along and it becomes wearying. But it's really very simple. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider that to be true. And then don't offer the parts of your body yourself to wickedness but offer yourself wholly to Jesus. Every morning you start the day saying, I am accepted and I am free. And ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in that that day. So people of grace, do you know this? Do you believe it? Do you count it to be true? And will you live in it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. We've spent a lot of time in prayer and, and worship this morning. It's been a good, a good day together. And when we hear your words, sometimes we realize that we, just, we live such shallow lives and we're so preoccupied and distracted with things of this world. And yet you call us to a whole different way of life and you call us to newness. So I pray now that you'd help us in that. Hear us and help us and pray for those here who are 
are not, not yet belonging to Jesus. They're not yet in Christ. They're still in Adam. That you draw them into you today, even today, that you would change hearts for your glory, Lord, and for our good. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Thank you.